This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week, we invite two researchers from vastly different fields to share what they've been working on, and then ask them to ask each other questions, make connections, and build bridges. Why? Because we don't think that science should be siloed. And that's why on today's program, we're talking about posture and public lands. Joining us today is San Francisco State University psychologist Eric Pepper, whose research interests include helping students learn how to keep from freezing up and blanking out during testing. And man, I really could have used that when I was a student. Hey, Eric. Hello. And also with us is Brady Matson, who grew up where the prairie meets the Northwoods in northwestern Minnesota, and who now studies conservation, wildlife ecology, and structured decision-making at the University of Natural Resources and Life Sciences in Vienna. Hey, Brady. Hi. First up today, the psychophysiologist. Good standing posture is a comfortable, easy position, such that a straight line could be drawn from your ear through your shoulder, the center of your hip, and your ankle. When you stand and walk with your body in a straight line, you don't have to throw out your chest, and your stomach flattens out naturally. That's a clip from a riveting educational film called Health, Your Posture. And in addition to being anachronistically hilarious, it also offers a few observations that haven't aged a bit in the 65 years since it was produced. Most notably, it makes the case that your posture affects your mood and your health. That's a connection that Eric Pepper studies at San Francisco State University, and his recent paper in the journal Neuroregulation makes the case that a simple change in posture can impact how students perform on tests. Eric, let's talk about the study a little bit because I love the simplicity of this thing. You asked 125 students to do a relatively simple math problem, but some were slouched and some were sitting upright, and there was a big difference. Talk about what you found. It is most interesting when people slouch versus sitting upright. When you slouch or often adopt the posture of being almost depressed. And what we found is when people then do mental math, let's say subtract the number 7 from 643, and then 7 again, that would be 636, and then you keep doing it backwards like this. And then you ask the person, how was that in one position or the other? There's a remarkable difference. It's much easier for most of the students when they're sitting up, they're looking up. It's like an optimism. They can do that math much easier when, when they are collapsed. That is the average. But I think the best finding of this, which we found, is that when you look at the data and you look at the people who are really anxious, the students who blank out, the students who, oh my gosh, I don't think I can do this problem, those are the ones who had the biggest effect. For some of those students, the moment they slouched, their mind went blank. And yet when they were sitting up, And looking up, they could do the problem. The posture is how we communicate to ourselves. When you feel defeated, you curl up, you feel more hopeless. And if you now think about it, when you move in that position of collapse, this slouching, without knowing, you're telling your brain, I am defeated, there's no hope. So in a way, our body posture is telling our brain and changing almost the state by which we can think and our emotions. If you want to experience that in a much easier way even than the math one, then all you do is you slouch, look down, and then pull up voluntarily hopeless, helpless, powerless, or defeated memories, one after the other. You do this for about 15 to 20 seconds. Then, keeping in that slouched position, you evoke 
positive and optimistic memories. Then you sit way up, you look upwards, you know, you arch your back, you're really looking up, just like you'd be looking at the top of trees. And then you can ask everybody, what was their difference? So this builds on your research showing that posture affects memory recall and mood too, right? There is a high significance. It's really remarkable that when you are in a slouch position, it's much easier to have access to these hopeless, helpless, defeated memories. And when we look at the electrical activity of the brain, in fact, we have demonstrated that the brain just has to just work harder. And while you're sitting up, you have a slightly easier way to access positive memories. But more importantly, as if when you access your negative memories, you develop a more distance, you're less involved. You have suggested that the difference might be related to something called stereotype threat response, this difference that you saw in this study. Talk about stereotype threat response. Stereotype threat are all the covert messages which the world has told us that the world is dangerous. It can be very subtle. If you know women do worse, you, you tell a story beforehand, you show some pictures, and all of a sudden when they are tested, they do worse, except you don't know you do it. So there are many cues in the world around us which evoke these stereotypic concepts which our brain now has been conditioned to, to tell us, you can't do this, and then we perform worse. Is this, in your mind, the reason why people who already experience anxiety are helped more by the posture because they've already psyched themselves out in some way? The reason people who have anxiety do worse, most likely, they're already fearful. They know the exam is going to be difficult. They know to themselves, I'm going to fail. I'm exaggerating. I won't do well. And then when they collapse, they evoke all those conditioned memories when they did bad. And so they literally, the body brain says, I'm giving up. On the other hand, when you sit up, you take a breath almost, you look up, and as if the negative memories take more distance, they're less powerful. They have less physical effect. I am not saying that it's easy to do because all of us know when we feel lousy, look up, forget it. I'm going to stay in the same way. If you generalize this, I am much more concerned about how many of us are automatically now slouching. The cell phone slouch. We all look down the whole time. We watch Netflix. We watch videos. We sit on the couch. We're slouching. We are putting our bodies into a depressive, I would say, hopeless stance, and if you have a history of either depression, hopelessness, or that kind of anxiety, then this will evoke those feelings more easily. So we've been talking about posture forever. How is it that this isn't a moot point by now? Why aren't we all better at posture? We've been being lectured on this by our parents all our lives. No, it's true. If you're a child, when your parents tell you, sit up straight, Do you listen? Not easily, at least. I didn't. You look at kings, they have this proud proud posture. You know, people who are defeated are collapsed. Most of us are totally unaware that slouching is almost draining our energy. How did you start thinking about the connection between our physiology and our psychology? Well, I do applied psychophysiology where I monitor physiology of the body teach the person to change it. So I'm very aware of the mind-body connection. But really, these exercises or this concept came from being a faculty member at San Francisco State. I teach a class three hours long from 7 to 10 Mondays, holistic health class. Many of the students work. So they come to class, 
And what happens in the evening? People become sleepy. Even when I think I'm excited, they start fading out. Just like in meetings, the longer you sit, the more you fade out. As if your energy slowly trickles down. Then I initiated taking every half an hour to do a little exercise. And every time I did some physical exercise that included laughter, there, the student's energy went up. So that was the first hint that just changing body let the energy go up. It worked better than caffeine. Then we ended up doing a study where we did a very simple controlled exercise, which we published. We asked students to walk for a minute or so in a very slow slouched position, very slow, looking down versus half the class skipping in place, skipping, you know, reaching up to the stars. And then the students had rated what happened to their energy when they sat in the beginning, when they slouched, no, slouched walk, or when they skipped walk. When they started to slouch walk, the energy went down. When they skipped, the energy went way up. That was consistent across all subjects. The next finding out of that data was the people who had reported being depressed over the last two years, when they started to slouch walk, this very, you know, very slow walk, their energy really dropped. That was this difference. And that to me was very insightful. That I, then I realized, ah, if I adopt a posture, like almost like a depressed posture, then that um, by classical conditioning almost evokes those memories. I am totally unaware of that. But I, it, the effect is worse. And now you can have control. That's Eric Pepper, whose recent study in the journal Neuroregulation makes the case that if you're struggling with test anxiety, try sitting up a little. Eric, can you stick around and chat more at the end of the show? Gladly. I want to ask you to do one thing in connection with it, in your own interest and in the interest of the country. Keep this great wonder of nature as it now is. Leave it as it is. You cannot improve it. That's a clip from the Ken Burns documentary series on America's national parks, featuring the words of President Teddy Roosevelt, encouraging officials in Arizona to protect the Grand Canyon. Roosevelt's creation of the national park system in the United States is among the most famous examples of the creation of protected areas, But it wasn't even close to the start of the global movement to designate conservation areas to protect their natural, ecological, or cultural value. That goes way back thousands of years to royal orders to protect lands in India, to feudal rules that protected hunting grounds in Europe, and religious edicts to do not disturb sacred spaces in Africa and the Pacific. Today, just about every country in the world has protected spaces, but the ways those spaces are managed is a patchwork of regulations, customs, rules, and lessons learned. And there's not a comprehensive approach to developing and sharing these solutions. Joining us now is Brady Matson, who studies conservation, wildlife ecology, and structured decision-making at the University of Natural Resources and Life Sciences in Vienna, His recent study in the journal Ambio introduces one possible approach based on peer learning. Brady, how is it that we have so many protected areas all around the world, but we don't have a good system for information sharing for the people who manage those areas? Well, I think it's a really new thing now with the Panorama Initiative. That's the whole point is to bring together these success stories and share them in a way that can be transferred to very different contexts. 
And so I think it's a really exciting development. And we, my role was as, really as a researcher to come in and try to evaluate this knowledge-sharing platform and to see what the successes have been and compare them to the challenges and how they can improve that platform into the future. So right now, if I manage a park in Brazil that has found a creative solution to poaching, there's not a really great way to share that with colleagues who might be facing similar programs in Kenya or Thailand. What you've examined in your research study is the effectiveness of a peer-to-peer learning system. What's the rationale for peer learning over a more top-down sort of approach? Well, I guess the logic is that there's all this knowledge that people carry around in their heads. They've been doing this work for years, and it's a matter of putting that knowledge down on paper so other people can learn from that, rather than following an order of instructions that may or not be applicable to, to the local context. So I think by taking the knowledge that's been held by these managers over the last decades and putting that into a framework that can be transferred across continents potentially is really exciting development. And so we're really looking at that as a potential way to solve these really complex problems involved with conservation and sustainable development. What sorts of problems do public area managers face that are similar to one another all over the world? I think we hear a lot of negative messaging about declines in biodiversity and climate change, and I think all these things are happening and they're common across the globe. But a lot of times we need to come up with ways to solve those problems at a local level. And there's always sort of a need to develop a tailored solution. So we're looking for ways to take these tailored solutions and scaling them up to the point where we can transfer them from one location to another. So it's not that you can transfer every method from one place to another. There may be certain methods that are transferable. And so I think it relies on the users, the practitioners, to have a database of potential solutions and look at them and evaluate them, whether they can take those solutions and bring them into to their local context. So I played around on this information sharing program you study, this panorama system, and it, it sort of felt like a conference, but where all the participants got to stay home... What's the advantage of a system like that? I mean, besides the fact that we can all participate in our pajamas. <laughs> well, I think what maybe people don't realize is that this initiative uh, actually has a live component. There are workshops that are going on. They're maybe not as highlighted as much on the website as they should be, but I think they're slowly working that way. I mean, the website is a way to bring pe- people together across the globe without having to meet face-to-face, but there is an actual series of workshops involved with the initiative as well. And in your experience, are protected area managers quickly moving toward a broader culture of knowledge sharing, or are people still struggling to share what they've learned and access what other people have learned? You know, I think everybody works a little bit differently, but I've noticed there is definitely a strong network of protected area managers that want to come together and share knowledge. Having a web portal provides yet another way that they can share information without having to travel uh, long distances to exchange information. I imagine that language is a big barrier. We have protected areas all over the world, and all over the world also we speak vastly different languages. What are some of the other barriers? You have to put the local context, and so you cannot go in and assuming that every solution is, it can be transferred to every other place within the protected area network. So you have to be kind of critical when you're evaluating this database of solutions to determine whether the particular methodology can be used in your local context or not. That's really the challenge, to figure out what are the key aspects that allow a solution to be successful in one area and being able to transfer that to a new area. And that's why they use this building blocks methodology, right? Really small bites of things that can be implemented one at a time and stacked up together. 
Exactly. It makes it so there's these more digestible pieces of the solution that may be more transferable than if you try to transport an entire solution from one place to another. You grew up on the edge of a national park, is that correct? It was actually a national wildlife refuge. Gotcha. The, the experience of growing up next to this vast and, I assume, fairly undisturbed piece of wildlife influence where you went in your life? My experience growing up had a huge effect on my life. My father worked at the refuge as a wildlife biologist. I was hugely influenced by his work there, and we would visit there frequently and would howl with the wolves and be immersed in nature. So I think I really didn't have a chance <laughs> to go follow any other path. How important is it to not just share lessons that public area managers have learned, but also just to create a space and environment in which they can share their own personal journeys and their own stories? There is a place within the format of the Panorama Initiative portal to talk more about the stories that go behind the solution. So it's not all this technical information about how to implement, but also sort of painting a picture of the general stories that they experience in implementing the solution. And you're in Vienna now. What have you found that's maybe culturally different with the way that public areas are managed there and managed back here in the United States? My experience is that it's very different between the protected area system in the U.S. compared to the protected area system in Europe. In the U.S., a lot of the protected areas are falling under the federal umbrella, so national parks and the national wildlife refuges, whereas in Europe it's, it's more fragmented because every country has its own designations for protected areas. Although there is one organization in Europe called Europark that tries to bring together all these protected areas within Europe, even though they're coming from different countries and different de designations, there is a, an attempt to bring them together, but it's much more difficult because the designations are so variable from one country to the next. What inspires you to do this work? Well, I want to make a difference, and I also love being a scientist, so I, I'm a very analytical person, and so I want to be critical and find sort of efficient solutions. And although I think it's exciting to implement these solutions on the ground, I think my role is more of an analyst to try to, to take a step back and look at the global picture and try to figure out how to adapt these solutions on the ground. That's Brady Matson from the University of Natural Resources and Life Sciences in Vienna, whose recent study in the journal Ambio reviews an approach for helping managers of protected areas share what they've learned and to learn from one another. Brady, can you stick around to chat with us just a bit more at the end of the program? Sure can. Well then, Brady, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Eric Pepper. And Eric, this is Brady Matson. Brady, a pleasure. And it was also a pleasure to listen to you. Because the task of conservation at any level is critical. When I work with students, what they're lacking is exposure to nature. And almost by definition... When one is in nature, one usually looks up, looks down, and moves. When it is a place where we no longer are just sitting on our seats and with our eyes glued at the screen. Great to meet you, Eric. I think your research is also very fascinating, although it kind of speaks to our common sense. I think it's important to have these controlled experiments to show people that, yeah, there's really no doubt that Having good posture and being in motion is really a key part to learning. It makes me think of now, my kids are just starting school, and we're really kind of motivated to keep them more in alternative style of learning where they're not just sitting behind desks. I think you're kind of naturally inclined to slouch when you sit at a desk. So I think this is really important uh, research. 
And if you think about this, we can ask the question, why did human beings or the mammals or anything develop brains? And it works out, at least from an evolutionary perspective, we developed a brain not to think initially or a nervous system. We developed a brain when we were a multicellular organism to develop coordination, to coordinate the different parts. That's the function. So the initial coordination, the initial movement is the basis of developing a nervous system. And when you have an animal, which is a juvenile, swims around and has a nervous system, and then as an adult anchors itself, as a sea squirt does, on a rock and no longer moves, it starts digesting its own brain. Human beings aren't really any different. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point, and I just hope that people become more aware of this and realize that getting out in nature and, and also along with that goes better posture to lead healthier lifestyles and be happier people. You know, me, myself, and my job, I, I'm constantly self-critical. Look, what am I, am I sitting behind the desk? I'm a scientist. I mean, that's kind of a limiting factor maybe for scientists. How do we get ourselves out from behind the desks, but still do scientific work. These days, there's a lot of expectations for producing lots of publications, which kind of forces you to sit behind a computer. But yeah, I'd be kind of curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. I totally agree with that concept. And the challenge is, how can you be aware that you are being so captured by the screen, for example, or by your data? And what we have just done more recently, we use an upright device, a biofeedback device you can just put on your neck or back. And what it does after you calibrate it and you're upright, every time you slouch, it starts vibrating. You can see the results in your app. It's a great reminder because all of a sudden, it helps us identify the situations where we start slouching. Yeah, I'd be curious to, to hear more about that. But I was wondering if there also might be sort of more natural solutions you can think of that wouldn't necessarily rely on technology to kind of get us away from our desks but still doing good scientific work. I think what any good scientist would do or want to encourage your children to do is go outside and explore nature. And nature means I look down at the floor, I look at eye level, I look at the far distance, I look at the trees, I look at the birds, so my body gets a whole range of movement, all different places, continuously. Unlike so many students, when they come to class, they sit on their chair, they lean forward, they open their smartphone, they text till the lecture starts, then in the break they text, and after the lecture they again text, and they're starting to lose the social communication. Remember, how we hold ourselves, our presence, is really partly embedded in our posture. It's such a horrible word. It's really how we are presenting ourselves, and that accounts for 80% of our nonverbal communication. I think you've presented kind of a, a really interesting challenge. How do we kind of escape this sort of being tied to technology and being and having bad posture and kind of getting more out, out in nature, moving around, learning from each other, and trying to, to do science maybe in a new way? If I could break in for a second, I'm interested in the idea of peer learning. Brady is exploring the effectiveness of that approach for protected area managers Eric, what do you think the role is of peer learning in helping people learn to use their bodies in a way that improves their mental and emotional states? I think having peer support, doing it in groups, peer learning is superb because all of a sudden people can share. Ah, I had that experience. And then you get community. And remember, we live in a world right now where we are more and more socially isolated. And by having more social networks, 
it really does improve our health as well. And I'm so tickled, intrigued with Brady's work of bringing people together both in physical space to share because I can learn from others and also on the web to connect because if we have more connections, we develop more openness. Eric, you do work on how people's posture impacts other parts of their well-being. Bree, what's been your experience with the way protected areas impact people's well-being? I have to admit this is not my specific area of research, but I'm, I'm aware of some studies that have been done recently that have shown there have been some measurable effects of the more time that people spend in natural environments, the better they perform, both physically and mentally. I think there's advantages both from measurements of physical health and also from measurements of ability to solve problems. Ability in, to solve problems actually increases after people spend like a week totally unplugged just going into wilderness. And when they come out, they're actually becoming better problem solvers. So I think it's really becoming more clear the more research is going on now, testing the effects of protected areas on well-being, that there is a huge benefit that people maybe don't realize. Maybe they realize intuitively, but I think it could come more to the fore and kind of be another strong way to promote the continued protection of these areas and maybe an expansion of the network of protected areas that we already have. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. Brady Matson, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. And Eric Pepper, thank you. My pleasure. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. And our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.